0: up. Huh. back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 129. We're really starting to accelerate into these topics related to Cuba that most of us who are interested in the JFK assassination are most familiar with. Today's episode addresses one of the first critical pivots, and it took place in 1952, after a carefully planned approach to winning back the presidency, there would be a realization by Batista and his followers that he was not going to win the election. For Meyer Lansky and the mafia, this would be a disaster of epic proportions if Batista was not to gain power in 1952. (laughs) So what is a dictator to do? Well, the natural thing to do, particularly in the Caribbean, is to stage a coup d'etat. And that is exactly what happened. And because such an event happened at a moment of great debate in Cuban society, ultimately, there would be a price to pay. The seeds of the revolution that came to fruition in the late 1950s were almost with certainty immediately born at the moment in which Batista seized power. It would take some time for those seeds to germinate, and it would take the right leaders and the right concoction of extraordinary events. But eventually, the next coming of the Cuban Revolution would take hold. In today's episode, we explore events that occurred right up to the moment of the 1952 election, and then some of the more important things that happened in the immediate aftermath. In the next episode, episode 130, we'll begin to focus our efforts on Fidel Castro, as he emerges to be the leader of the revolutionary groups That were opposed to the Batista regime. Before we get to the episode, I'm compelled to go on a small wander. When I was younger and first began to develop a love for history, there was an advertisement that appeared quite ubiquitously in various magazines. It used to be common for these kinds of offers to appear toward the rear of the publication, all collected together. The offer was for an 11 volume history of the world and it was entitled The Story of Civilization. It was written by a history professor named Will Durant, and as you might expect, he was already old because something like this was, by definition, a lifelong work before its completion. He wrote each of the volumes with the help of his wife as part of their lifelong partnership in scholarship, and as it turned out to be for later volumes, she would be so involved that eventually Ariel would have her name in the byline of the later volumes as well. I always wondered how one or two people could amass enough knowledge to write a formidable history of the story of the world, of the story of civilization. They dedicated much of their entire lifetime to completing their good work. It's more than humbling to think that anyone could write anything that comprehensive and that insightful about the entirety of mankind. I came to know much of its contents reasonably well, because in my very early years in high school and college, I had a boss at work who was fascinated by history, and he purchased the set himself. He was obsessed, and I use that term quite appropriately, with reading a bit out of the volumes almost every night. And once he was at work, the story retelling from the reading of the night before, it would begin with me. He knew I was developing a love for history, too, and so I was the first and principal conversation. Eventually, I bought the 11-volume set myself so that I could read along and learn more. After all, I was getting his filtered version of what happened. I wanted to read it for myself. Like most things that you get a pension for, we read a lot and we discussed a lot at first. And then as time went on, in lesser doses, little bits at a time, not every night anymore, but quite often still. Does that sound familiar? It's probably a lot like listening to JFK The Enduring Secret. The volumes are rich in detail, surprisingly rich. I'm not sure how many people have ever comprehensively written so much. Still, like a whirlwind trip to Europe visiting all the major cities and ports of call, there's only so much time and effort one can spend on any given topic. For this reason, it's probably not the best book on any one given topic, but that's not its intended purpose. I suppose if they had written a mission statement, it would have been something like this. Let's write a book, or story of it all that is synthesized through one lens in which tells the story not just the facts and figures of history but with the richness that comes with viewing history in a more cohesive way portraying the backdrop and context of society as a complex living organism that is bred from the culture of the times and which exists at that moment and that is multifaceted and all intertwined. And for a true historian to get the story correct, well, that requires careful consideration of what was truly present in the moment and what forces of nature and man were truly at work at that moment and in that place of history. That's quite a task for any human to do. You know, I'm struck by what my brother said on this podcast about history and its writings. Dennis was in academic administration most of his life. He was a history major in college, and he and I would soon, at that early age, gain a love for history together, too. Those volumes helped with that as well. On this very show, Dennis would declare that all history was revisionist history and that he himself was a revisionist historian. I had never thought of history described in that way before Dennis said that. Well, in that way other than when wars are fought and stories are written and rewritten purely for political purposes. But the concept goes much deeper than that. The sheer complexity of trying to portray events of long ago as if you were there in the moment is, in one sense... A great folly of history. Everyone tries and everyone falls short when it comes to doing that. Whatever one writes and records, it's just their best shot at depicting the real truth. Books are constantly written about topics of continuing interest and how the matters of interest are viewed through one more lens. Perhaps with some level of incremental evidence or insight and most assuredly, with at least one more individual perspective brought by this new author, whoever he or she may be. These works reshape our understanding of the matter. If they are real and if they are popular, they also advance our general understanding of the truth. That is, revisionist history working at its finest. The modern sin, of course, that is inherent in revisionist history is rewriting the historical record solely through the eyes of one more person who was not there, and doing it years and years and sometimes centuries and millenniums after the fact, with really no true understanding of the culture and the norms of the day, and no true understanding of how an event matriculated in the cauldron of life at that moment. I think you know where I'm going with this topic. Need I say any more? I'll just let this one matriculate with you. Well, I still have that set of books from Will and Ariel Durant. It's on my top shelf in my own library of books. In one sense, it's a maniacal attempt to cover some eight to 10,000 years of history, telling more than just the facts, but bringing the richness of man's story to the forefront, so that we could truly understand why and how something happened when it did. But no doubt it's one single cohesive perspective about mankind's history since we started writing all of this stuff down and recording history beyond just scratching images on a cave wall. I am not an historian. I sometimes liken this one small wander about one event that is the JFK assassination. One event in the 10,000-year history of our civilization is a sort of uh, mini Will and Ariel Durant episode. When I compare what I'm doing to what they have done, well, it gives me humility and also a newfound understanding for the level of research and scholarship that they developed to do what they did versus the rather small journey we are taking here. I might be stomping on an ant as compared to their catching of the elephants, but I understand their approach to it, and it truly shaped my approach to bringing you, JFK, The Enduring Secret, to tell the story in the context of its day with all of its richness of culture and social norms and told through one consolidating lens of storytelling. JFK, The Enduring Secret, is not always, and perhaps not even often, the deepest evidential discussion you will have on the assassination details. And our history and storytelling, as hard as we try to ensure its accuracy, is still subject to the frailties of research by just one man telling the story and producing the show in the way that I do. What I hope to do is to approach it like Will and Ariel Durant did. With incredible richness of detail and accuracy, with continuity of storytelling, including the context of the moment and the complexities of society in the 1950s and 1960s, always taking note of that and pointing it out to the reader. In wandering through Cuba, we continue to tell the story of the island, and many of you may wonder why. I know that it's a long ways away from a witness in Dealey Plaza, but the long wander of these recent episodes through Cuba's history Is for a reason. The story of the assassination is complex, which is why it has not definitively been declared yet as being solved. That is part of the fun of the entire wander of this podcast, the mystery of it. So, to get deeper into it and be in a better position to understand the whole and move past the conjecture of others to make a more confident conclusion on our own of what really happened. And who really did it? Well, that's why this is all so essential. Patience has prevailed long enough. There is now a sense of urgency before this matter simply slips into the deep abyss of history as time runs out. So, we must all stay at it and we must be vigilant at seeking what truth might still be left to uncover. The day today is November 14th. It just so happens that this day was my dad's birthday. He's been gone now for a few years. He would have been 98 today. He lived a good long life, but I still miss him. Today's episode is dedicated to you, Dad. James Edward Crudell. You know, there was a time when I thought, rather naively, that he would live forever. He is one more reminder that sometimes we get extra time to figure it out in life. But we don't have forever to do that. We are eight days away from November 22nd. In eight days, it will be 59 years since that horrific moment occurred in Dealey Plaza. What happened that day is still classified as an enduring secret. But... It's one that I am still hopeful that we can solve in my lifetime and bring out the truth of this matter. And then, and only then, will the true revisionist history of the assassination be in the hands of the American people. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 129 of JFK The Enduring Secret. Focus. Hurricanes have always been a problem in South Florida and in the Caribbean in general. I've lived through a lot of them over the years. They're an everyday concern of life during the hurricane season. It's even worse in the Caribbean than it is in South Florida. The reason I'm telling you that is because the 1948 presidential inauguration in Cuba, which took place in October, was affected by two terrible hurricanes within a two-week period that year. One of them made landfall on Cuba's southwestern coast, and it brought sustained winds of up to 132 miles an hour, killing at least 11 people and injuring several hundred more on the island. The island sustained significant property damage in Havana, and the storm even wreaked havoc on the yacht of the president-elect Carlos As a result of the storm, the yacht sank. One thing that happens in a hurricane almost everywhere, at least everywhere there are above-ground electrical lines, is that the power goes out. And in this case, in Cuba, that's exactly what happened. And back then, as now, if you didn't have power, well, likely you didn't have communication. So the inauguration, which should have been a grand event, was interrupted by the natural disasters that had just occurred. Many Cubans missed hearing the inaugural speech of this new president. In that period, in the 1940s, radio was the reigning medium of communication. It was well before the TV era. There were some TVs already coming onto the scene. However, they were rare. But the island of Cuba did have robust radio networks. They were the lifeline of communication in the day. It was popular then for political parties to have their own radio stations, or at least dedicated shows on radio stations, to get their mass communication and messaging out to the hinterlands. It was cutting-edge stuff in those days. As far as the inauguration goes, it was the usual decorum on that day. Carlos Prio, the newly elected president of Cuba, he merged through the door of an upper floor of the palace and steadied himself to make a prepared speech to the populace, the group that had gathered below. And then, of course, when the speech was all over, <laughs> there would be a military parade to follow. But the real story of the day had nothing to do with the actual presidential inauguration itself. In fact, the entire event of the inauguration turned out to be a deception to some extent, a deception used by others to perpetrate one of the most audacious and open robberies by a government official ever to take place in modern times. You see, not too far away from where Carlos Prios was giving his speech was the Cuban Treasury Building. Four American trucks would pull into the garage, all of them with markings, familiar markings to the guards, that made it appear as if they were operated by the Ministry of Education and out would pop the outgoing minister of education, José Manuel Alimán. He and a coterie of men emerged from the trucks with suitcases in tow. Alimán, who was a frequent visitor to the building, was known to the guard. (laughs) The guard even joked with him as he passed him by. Even to the guard, this seemed a bit odd. And as Alimán passed him, he would hear the guard say jokingly, You're not going to raid the treasury, are you? And apparently, the playful response from the minister was, Who knows? Aliman apparently had access to the vaults at the treasury, and once inside the vaults, he and his men began filling up the suitcases with piles of cash. There was every kind of monetary denomination in the vault. There were Cuban pesos, British pounds, French francs, Soviet rubles, Italian lira, and of course, a fortune in U.S. dollars. They would fill the suitcases quickly, and then Aliman would take the suitcases with the American dollars in it and head straight to the airport. There he would board a DC-3 airplane, which shortly thereafter would touch down in Miami. Of course, the next step was that Aliman had to get the cash off the plane, and that required taking the suitcases through customs. Apparently, Aliman despite his gargantuan criminal tendencies, was an incredibly honest man at moments. And for a moment, he was incredibly honest with the American customs official that he was now dealing with. As he maneuvered through customs, the U.S. agents asked him what he was carrying, and he looked at them and said, $19 million, a tidy sum of money for just about anyone in 1948. Well. That raised the eye of the customs officers, and they began to delve more into the circumstance. Aleman was not shy, and he was firmly schooled in U.S. law as it related to the customs matter at hand. He looked directly at the customs agents and asked them to call their superiors. He knew there was no U.S. law prohibiting anyone from entering the United States, at least at that moment in time, with this large a sum of U.S. currency. Here he was on the day of an incoming administration in Cuba making an outgoing exit as a former government minister and arriving in the States carrying a fortune in U.S. dollars. Real cash. A fortune that was literally stolen that morning from the Cuban treasury. But you know, criminals don't just get up one morning and change their stripes. After the fact, when all this began to unravel and folks began to focus on it, Back in Cuba, they would have even greater suspicions about what he might have been doing the whole time he was the Minister of Education, including placement of literally thousands of ghost workers on his Ministry of Education payroll. We'll say more about that circumstance in a minute. Like so many wealthy people of the day in that area of the world, he had residences and homes on both the island of Cuba in Havana and in Florida. He also owned apartment buildings and hotels scattered throughout Miami Beach and parts of southwest Miami, in an area that we now know quite well as Little Havana. If you can believe it, he actually bought the palatial estate once owned by Al Capone, and he purchased all of Key Biscayne. I'm not talking about a home on Key Biscayne. I'm talking about the entire island of Key Biscayne in Miami. For anyone who lives in South Florida, that's almost unfathomable to believe at this moment in time. Back in his native country of Cuba, he was an owner of many businesses, including a sugar mill, a freight company, a baseball team, and even large tracts of land in a major suburb of the city called Habana del Este or Havana East. Not so lucky for Aleman, though. He would die two years later, but it wasn't before he had amassed a fortune that estimated to be somewhere between $70 million and $200 million. All of this was done some eight years after the Cubans had finally declared themselves under a new constitution in 1940, a framework of sorts of which the country was very proud and that it was just beginning to engage with. Every politician on from 1940 would make the claim that they were going to be the one that would breathe life into that constitution. Ironically, none of those elected post the 1940 adoption would do anything to even uphold it or make it more real. Back to the graft for a second. The idea of ghost workers was really not a new one in the Cuban administrations heretofore. If we rewind the tape for just a second, we talk about Fulgencio Batista and we know that in 1940 he originally swept into the presidency and what was then considered to be a relatively fair and free election, and he was able to administrate the island of Cuba during a relatively stable period despite World War II. Some of the sugarcane crops during his administration turned out to be some of the largest yet harvested on the island to date. But even his administration was plagued from 1940 through 1944 with problems of graft and much of it related to ghost workers. The new constitution of 1940 provided that there was no consecutive second term for a president. So Batista was forced to step aside, technically, but his expectations at that moment were that his prime minister would become the elected successor. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. The people were enamored with Ramon Grau San Martin, who largely came into the focus of the Cuban people in 1933 as part of the Makata uprising. The people were looking to put Grouse back in office. Grouse won that year, but unfortunately 1944 to 1948 was just a continuation of the graft and corruption that had been in place to some extent during the first Batista presidency. Carlos Prio was Grouse's prime minister, and of course he would be the logical successor, and indeed He was elected to the presidency in 1948, and he continued the entire bad boy circumstance with all the trappings of power. He would spend lavishly and build a fabulous mansion and do it amongst an increasing level of public consciousness and criticism, criticism that there was little money for basic public infrastructure, including schools and public works. There's one thing to note here. Many historians believe that because of the continuing American economic domination of the island at that point, a circumstance where American companies were still the principal economic engines within Cuba for so many industries, including sugar, and because of this, well, it left just one potential avenue for the rest of the Cuban population to generate economic wealth, and that was the government. Does that sound familiar? It was the usual play. Graft money skimmed off the top of government revenues somehow to be funneled to build a mansion here or there or to travel to Miami for fun or for shopping or to buy real estate there or just to put friends and family on the payroll. These were corrupt politicians and of course when you get this good culturally at graft it just becomes ingrained and an ingrained way of life. And indeed, it was just that in Cuba. And so, it's not much of a leap to see why the environment was so attractive to the Mafia. In essence, the whole Mafia plan included the corralling of powerful Cubans, Cubans at the top of the government and Cubans elsewhere in society, corralling them so that they would look the other way when they needed to about a lot of things. And there is no doubt that while the grand plan that Lansky had in mind was to create an island paradise full of casinos, a Monte Carlo perhaps on the Isle of Pines, but on a day-to-day basis, it was still a place to house the largest narcotics operations in the Western Hemisphere to understand how far up corruption ran in the government and to understand how far up the narcotics connections ran as well you have to understand the web of individuals that folks like Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky engaged with here's an example francisco paco prios socaros was the brother of the future cuban president this man was also a senator in cuba and he was also engaged in drug trafficking. That is, according to the U.S. narcotics agents. And would you be surprised if I told you that Jose Manuel Aleman was also a good friend of Luciano's and Lansky's? You see, the list is incredibly long of VIPs that Luciano and Lansky cultivated on the island. In reality, this was a complex relationship. Some historians characterize it as a part of a institutionalized corruption, where the mafia paid regular kickbacks to government officials and others, and there is no doubt that this was the case. And as this began to develop over a long period of time, the relationship became so close that, at times, some say it might have been difficult to tell the difference between the Cuban state itself and the mafia. This gangsterismo environment and mentality was a curious mixture of the times, the politics, the corrupt political officials, the members of the mafia, along with representation from political radicals as well. But just as I said at the beginning of this episode, cultures are a complex thing, and you can't define all of what was happening in the context of this graft that I'm describing now. In the bigger picture, there were some good things that were actually beginning to happen on the island, too. And there were elements of society that were moving along and progressing at accelerated rates and developing levels of sophistication that put them, in some cases, on the world's center stage. For instance, from 1946 to 1948, Cuban jurists helped draft the United Declaration of Human Rights at the United Nations. Cuba's mixed-race history allowed them to become front and center in the quest to recognize black figures and revolutionary leaders at various times in their own history, and to use that on center stage in the World Forum as well. It's an interesting thing because, as you might expect, there is a parallel to some of the same types of events and elements that were beginning to happen in American society at about the same time. Mass media and communication helped to bring on more of a people's movement in Cuba to remove the corruption that was present in so many aspects of its society. If there is one person that we can tell you about today that embodies that pivot socially in the country, it's an individual named Eduardo Chabas. Chibas got his start at the University of Havana, as many politicians did in those days. And he became a member of the new Autentico political party, and initially he was a supporter of Grau in 1944. But he became so popular himself that he was also able to win his own Senate seat in the Cuban Senate that same year. But it didn't take him long before he got disgusted with how corrupt Grau was and how Grau had so terribly abdicated his responsibility to the Cuban people. But Chabas wasn't just another upset politician in the Congress. It turns out that he had become one of the most popular radio personalities in all of Cuba. And as I mentioned before, Cuba apparently had a lot of radios. It's estimated that he had an audience following of several hundred thousand people, and he had a radio show that came on every Sunday night at 8 o'clock p.m. There was a typical scene from the 1930s into the 1940s where not everybody had a radio, but if you had a radio, you invited others socially to your house to listen in. It was said that uh, his show was as popular as the soap operas. He was said to have been an incredible orator who pulled no punches when it came to talking about the abuses that Cuban government officials were engaging in. And by 1947, he was so disgusted with President Grau that he sent a 12-page letter to him and, among other things, asked him to remove from office a series of corrupt ministers and bring them to justice. President Grau did not act on these requests. These very public condemnations of the Cuban administration were not like what they are today in America, an everyday thing. It's now so commonplace in our country that it's just a cacophony hardly heard in anyone's ear. But back then, people were listening. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But there's sort of a funny dust bowl political scene in the movie where local politicians and paid participants at a political rally are all holding brooms in hand. And the analogy is that they are going to sweep out the old politicians clean out the closets, so to speak, and replace them with new ones. That was a familiar political scene in pictures taken in Cuba during that era. A handful of women, all with their whisk brooms in hand, all signifying a clean sweep. On his May eleventh, 1947 radio show, Chivas would set forth the concept that maybe It was time to split the authentical party of which he was a member and take from it those that still adhere to the original ideals of economic independence, political liberty, and social justice. It wouldn't be long after that, perhaps just a few days after that, that Chabas would preside over a meeting and among those present was a 20-year-old law student at the University of Havana named Fidel Castro. Chabas would once again publicly make the claim and request President Grau to comply with the splitting of the party. Well, Grau ignored it entirely, of course. So the next week, on Sunday, May 18th, just two hours after a 72-hour deadline that Shabazz had given Grau to agree to a split of the party, Shabazz announced on the radio that he was forming a new party, and it would be called the Partito del Pueblo Cubana, the Party of the Cuban people. More commonly known as the Orthodoxy or Orthodox Party. The party was immediately able to field and support candidates in the 1948 elections, and Chabas himself enthusiastically went forward, even though he was fighting an uphill battle. The new party didn't win, but the showings at the polls were somewhat impressive. But what was interesting is that this new ortodoxo party earned votes that were equal to just about double the number of their formally registered members. They were gaining momentum. That was a signal to those who were watching, including Americans. There seemed to be a pivot towards supporting individuals who were working extensively to remove the corruption within the Cuban government and the election caused that message to be trumpeted all over the island, including in the island's most popular magazine, The Bohemian. Chabas hadn't gained political office as a result of all this, but he had started a party and a movement, and he would now pivot and spend his next season of life building that party and turning up the heat on the existing president, Carlos Prio. He would go back to his old radio show and he would continue to make some very clearly pointed claims at members of the Cuban government. He pioneered a new style of what might be known as accusatory politics, often using the phrase yo acusa" in Spanish, or I accuse in English. This format of political statement would be a regular entertainer in the elections, in his 1952 Senate run, out of some of these accusations came one of the largest graft and corruption indictments that has ever appeared before a Cuban criminal court, at least up to that time. It was known as lawsuit 82, and it detailed an incredible level of embezzlement and fraud that was undertaken, yes, as you can probably guess, by our friend Jose Manuel Aliman, the former Minister of Education and the same man who had masterminded the Inauguration Day vault heist at the Cuban Treasury. The accusation was that Aliman had stolen over $174 million, as part of the details articulated in Lawsuit 82. It was a 33-page accusation, and it would take considerable amount of time to gather the level of documentation necessary to show the fraud. In the end, there were more than 5,000 documents and they were gathered up and finally brought into the judge's chambers. Incidentally, it was the one and only judge that agreed to hear the case after it had been rejected by numerous others. However, shortly in the wee hours of the morning, somewhere around 2 a.m. on July 22nd, 1950, a truck pulled up in front of the courthouse. Similar to the Treasury affair, There was another group of men who piled out of those same green-looking trucks, and this time again also carrying suitcases, and they walked straight into the judges' chambers, and they took every bit of evidence, every last document, and every last piece of paper associated with the case. In the end, though, that didn't stop the case from moving forward, although it did delay hearing of the case for a time. About a year later, President Grau, who by that time was already out of office, and 10 of his former ministers were charged with the crime, although the forensic calculations of the financial impact were reduced substantially to around $40 million instead of the original $174 million. The trial itself was both the good and the bad that was occurring in Cuban society at the time. Yes, there was terrible graft, but It was eventually brought to justice. With Chabas, it seemed like the tide was turning. They were winning the hearts and minds of the people. This nasty business of eradicating the corrupt politics on the aisle was beginning to take hold. What came next, though, is almost inexplicable. Chabas had gone back to his everyday approach to exposing publicly on his radio show the corruption that still existed in the government. And at this very moment, he was in a battle with the new Minister of Education. It was just another one, now accused of his own misdeeds, this time stealing school breakfast funds to purchase real estate abroad. As the public battle went on, Chabas told his audience that he was going to present clear proof that this embezzlement had occurred, and he was going to reveal that evidence on his Sunday broadcast of August 5th. 1951. On that day, he came to the station carrying a small suitcase, and those working there at the station just assumed that he had brought the evidence that he was going to read or somehow articulate on air to his audience, the evidence that would be necessary to prove this crime. Instead, he did none of that. He presented no evidence of any crime and simply went into a tirade about the circumstances, demanding independence political freedom, and social justice for the people of Cuba, demanding that they sweep away the government and the graft, and demanding that the people of Cuba rise up, asking the people of Cuba to awaken, and telling the audience that this was his last knock on the door of the Cuban people. Well, what happens next is shocking. At this very moment, he opened his briefcase and he took out a gun, and then he literally shot himself on air. Rather ironically, there was a pre-programmed timeout that pivoted the audiences to a commercial. It was a coffee commercial for Cafe Pylon. And so the audience actually never heard the shot at all. All they heard was the commercial. It was a fluke, and no one is sure exactly why it happened or why he did it. He actually shot himself in the stomach, and he didn't die right away. In fact, he lived for almost a week afterward. Chabas died on August 16, 1951. He was brilliant, and he was loved by the Cuban people, and he would likely have been the country's next president. His funeral was of fantastic proportions, as it almost always is for public figures that are well-known and well-liked. It's estimated that more than 300,000 people accompanied the coffin from the university where he lied in state before he was buried at a nearby cemetery. He was gone now, and while his party attempted to carry on, it wasn't the same. Yet there was still a legacy. There was a level of political activism and political militancy that was taking shape in the country and that would take hold in the 1950s. And Shabazz was largely responsible for helping to light the fire and there is no doubt that it contributed to the circumstance under which Fidel Castro was able to garner a groundswell of support from the Cuban people in the months and years to come. And, of course, there is the ultimate theft that remains to be articulated today. It happened on March tenth, 1952. Fulgencio Batista was running for president, and what I'm about to describe might have said it all. Or it might just have been a sign of arrogance. But at any rate, his campaign billboards were symbolic of what was happening. They were nothing more than a gigantic picture of him, well-dressed in a suit, with but one phrase underneath his countenance. And it said, Estate el hombre, which means in Spanish, this is the man. They didn't even have his name on the billboard, obviously assuming that he was Recognizable to everyone. But something was happening. Things were not going right for Batista. The polls in those days, to the extent that they were available, placed him third in the contest. He wasn't winning, and quickly he became the man whom everyone began to whisper about. It was the man who was going to lose the 1952 election. Batista knew it too, and he knew that he would have to take action. He would quietly gather a coterie of trusted and loyal lieutenants from the military and then plan and execute a coup. It would be done under the guise that the election was about to be called off anyway by the incumbent and that a military intervention would be necessary to preserve the country. So, in the wee morning hours of March 10th, he would occupy a jeep that would be placed at the head of a convoy a convoy that was on its way straight to Camp Columbia. It was a highly thought-out and refined approach to a coup d'etat, and his military men would seize army posts across the city and set up commands at all strategic locations, and there would be military-style roadblocks all around Havana. It was not possible to leave the city for all intents and purposes if you were there. You were at least temporarily incarcerated within the boundaries of Havana's geography. They took over bus and train depots, they seized banks, and they began to control government offices. And of course, most importantly, they immediately took control of the radio and television stations. As the sun began to rise and rumors began to fly that a coup had taken place, citizens would turn their radios and televisions on and hear nothing but soothing music. But there was no news of any coup. As a show of force, Batista sent tanks down the main streets of Havana and placed them in strategic locations where they could be readily seen. Existing President Carlos Prio would soon get the message and flee the Presidential Palace. Prio would make his way to Mexico and then ultimately to Miami. As you might expect, Batista declared that the existing Cuban Congress was dissolved, and he placed armed guards all the way around the congressional buildings to ensure that the current congressional members and their staff would be unable to conduct business. Oh, and there was this thing about the impending election. It was canceled as well. Surprised? And you know, He even gave himself a raise and officially upped the presidential salary from $2,000 to $12,000 a month in one of his first official acts. You know, even in a coup d'etat, there is a certain level of public dissent that gets expressed. And it's always a calculation by those engaged in the grab of the government as to whether or not they let it go or whether or not they can even prevent it. As was typical in Havana in the day, the students were vocal about this seizure of the government and they protested openly. They went to the corner of 25th and Hospital Streets in Havana, where they staged a symbolic burial of the 1940 Constitution, right in front of a bust of Martí. And there were many other silent protests and passive acts of resistance. Within a week, a group of students would gather at the tomb of Eduardo Shabazz and they would condemn the coup. And among those present was Fidel Castro. Castro would climb atop a crypt and loudly call for the overthrow of Batista by force. But in reality, it was very clear within days afterward that the army was firmly behind Batista. So Castro changed his tactics. He brought a lawsuit against Batista, and there was a case that detailed each of Batista's violations of the 1940 Constitution, and it called for the maximum prosecution and sentence, which totaled more than 100 years in prison. The case, of course, went nowhere. Batista had been successful at stealing the government, and the Cuban people were in no shape to resist. If that were not enough, Within two weeks of the coup, U.S. President Harry S. Truman extended to the Batista government their official recognition. And of course, as you might expect, one of the happiest people on that day was a mobster watching the action from afar inside his swanky New York apartment. His name was Meyer Lansky. Very soon, Lansky would be headed back to Cuba. ¡Coco seco! ¡Coco seco! Thank you for listening to episode 129 of JFK The Enduring Secret.